Good morning, everyone. If you brought a Bible, you can turn in it to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be there in just a few seconds. It's been said that the soul of marriage can be a place where two people can come together quietly from the struggles of the world and feel safe, accepted, and loved. Or it can be a battleground where two egos are locked in a lifelong struggle for supremacy, a battle which is, for the most part, invisible to the rest of the world. I have found in my short life that 100% of marriages have struggles. I used to think it was a smaller fraction than that, but I found out one couple was just faking it. <laughs> we have financial troubles, we have communication troubles, and often troubles that revolve around intimacy. And so marriage is a big deal to God. And of course, it's a big deal to us. It can bring the greatest joy, and it can also bring the greatest pain. For these reasons and others, Paul says just three verses before the verses we'll read together in a moment, just three verses ahead of that, he says, be filled with the Spirit because we need the Spirit of God in our marriages. Anybody that's been married longer than five minutes <laughs> knows that this is an impossible task that God has called us to. And I think after reading these scriptures together and talking a little bit about them this morning that you'll agree that we need the Lord's help. We need God's help. So let me just preface my comments this morning by saying this. We need to be filled with the Spirit, but how are we filled with the Spirit? You see, the Spirit of God comes into our lives in essentially three different ways. The first way is when we first come to Christ, the Spirit of God comes into our life. Immediately, that's how we are born again. The Bible says in Titus 3, 5 that he saved us, not because of righteous things that we'd done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that actually regenerates us and changes us and makes us new. We're not born again when we raise our hand. We are not born again when we pray, although we might be when we do those things. We are born again when the Spirit of God comes into our life and begins that renewal process in our life. That is one way that we receive the Holy Spirit. Another way that we receive the Holy Spirit is subsequent to salvation. The Spirit is already in us, but there's something else called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is when, in an instant, totally by God's grace, and with fullness comes into our life. This often happens through laying down of hands, people praying over us. Sometimes it can happen just, just on our own where the, the Spirit of God will come upon us in such a way. But it comes in this way. It comes suddenly, in a moment. It comes in fullness, with nothing held back. We are baptized in the Spirit. And then thirdly, it comes solely on God's grace, not depending on what we've done or what we haven't done. This can come multiple times during our walk with the Lord. So there's the initial experience of the Spirit of God coming in us. There's a secondary experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But there's also this other experience, which Paul talks about just in verse 18, just previous, prior to these verses, where he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is the idea that the Spirit is in our life, but there's something that we can do to be filled, to be more filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's better said, keep on being filled with the Spirit. So it begs the question, then how do we keep on being filled with the Spirit? And I think it lies in these verses where Paul says to Colossians, Colossians is very similar to the book of Ephesians, but he says to Colossians, he says this, set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. This is that two-pronged approach of being filled with the Spirit. That first of all, we set our minds on the things above. We set our minds on the things of God, what God has for us in this life. We walk according to faith and not according to sight. We make it our purpose on a practical level to put God first in everything. And set our mind on things above and 
don't set your mind on the things below. This life can steal our joy, can steal the fullness of the spirit. I mean, I mean, you can listen to the news one night and your, and your joy be stolen, you know, sort of thing. And so there's, this is what the Bible calls the cares and concerns of this life which come in and choke out his word. They act as a choking device for the spirit of God in us that wants to bubble up and overflow. The cares and concerns of this world just come in and choke it. And so the way we be filled with the Holy Spirit or keep on being filled is that we set our mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. Guys, in our marriages, we need to make Jesus number one. Not only because he deserves to be number one, but because we need him to be number one. That we can't have the marriage that we want or that God desires by just simply walking in the flesh. We will destroy ourselves and destroy our marriage. So this, everything I'm going to say to you in these verses is predicated on being filled with the Spirit. Guys, we need to be filled with the Spirit. There's no sense living in the shadow line shadow lands of Christianity, where you're not in the full sunshine, you're not in the shadows, you're just in that in-between, you're just, you're just medium. Guys, that's no fun for anybody. You're just on the fence, and it's, it's, you're not having fun in, on the Christian side because you're only in halfway. You're not having fun on the world side because you're only in halfway. So we set our minds on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. Then, Paul says these words to couples. If you'll stand together with me, we'll read them together. Starting in verse 21, he says this. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. But as Christ also does the church, so because we are members of his body, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking, of the, you know, I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respect her husband. Let's pray together. So Lord, we want to say thank you for the things that you are depositing in our hearts this morning. Lord, we sense an open heaven. We sense open hearts. We sense that you want to do something in this place this morning that is more than just gaining intellectual knowledge, that you want to do surgery on our hearts. And so Lord, I'm praying it so in the mighty name of Jesus, Lord, let it come to pass. Lord, let the hardest of hearts be penetrated today, Lord. Let the softest of hearts be rained on afresh, Lord, that they would be, they would be even more open to the things that you have for us today. And so Lord, Speak into our lives, transform us, change us into that measure of the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I've broken my comments up into three particular points. Number one is instructions for married couples. Number two is instructions for wives. And number three is instructions for husbands. So let's just start with these instructions for married couples. First of all, it says in verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This idea of being submissive is sometimes problematic in our society. What Paul means by this, the biblical term means to give deference, deference or to be yielding or to be cooperative. It's in this sense of 
being subordinate, of intentionally placing yourself in a place of subordination, that you suborient yourself under someone else. This is something that kind of gets our hackles up when we first hear about it, because our culture doesn't teach us this at all. Our culture teaches us that we have to stand up for ourselves. We have rights. And if these rights are violated, God help the person that violated them. But this is not Jesus's way. Jesus's way is found in my Bible just by flipping the page in uh, Philippians chapter two, where he says this, be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself even to the point of death. That is our way. Not stand up for everything that's owed to me, not have an attitude of, of, you know, people have to treat me right and I need to be respected, an attitude of entitlement. Our attitude is a humble attitude, a servant's attitude like Jesus coming in the form of a bondservant. Think about this for a moment. The God of the universe, the Lord of the universe who breathed all of this into being in a split second, who rules over all the universe and keeps it going, that God decided to become incarnate and walk amongst us. That would be enough. Because the difference of an eternal being, not only eternal, an infinite eternal being, becoming, at least in the flesh, finite and not omnipresent, the difference between an infinite God becoming finite in that sense, in the flesh, is, is far huger than us becoming a, a maggot to win the maggots. I'm not saying we're maggots. I'm just saying the difference there is infinitely larger. When we think about, you know, well, I want to become a maggot so I can go save the maggots. The difference between an infinite God becoming a human being is infinitely larger. So all I'm saying, if you're still with me, some of you look, look like, Greg, you just lost me. <laughs> so what I'm saying is this, that this is a big deal. That this is a big deal for the God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is a big deal for him to become incarnate in flesh and to be born of a virgin and then to grow up as a child and surely, surely being disciplined by his parents and then just having to submit. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, just submitting to, to mom and dad. Does that sound like a big deal to you? That sounds like a big deal to me. But it's not only that. Jesus lived his entire life this way. In fact, he went to the cross as part of his submission to the Father. There's this account on the, on the evening of the Last Supper. You're familiar with it, but let me retell it to you. This is the account where, where all the disciples, uh, the apostles, they get together and they have uh, a supper with Jesus. And uh, you know that painting by Michelangelo where they're all sitting in a line, you know, and they're, you know, that wasn't like that. They weren't sitting at a table. They were reclining and the table was probably, you know, this far off the ground, which is probably just a big pile of rugs. And they're reclining with their feet out because feet in these days are nasty, you know? It's like, I don't, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but sometimes being in foreign countries you do is where the, the sewer system isn't that great and there's animals all over the streets and all these kind of things. I mean, it's nasty. And so your feet get nasty. So when you come inside the house, you clean your feet. And I can just picture that, that vase and the bowl sitting by the door for people to pour in the bowl and then they put their, in their feet and they wash their feet and then they go have dinner. But nobody washed their feet. 
And I just wonder if they weren't thinking, you know, I wonder if someone's going to get up and wash my feet. And they're looking around the room like, well, John, he's not busy. He could get up and wash my feet. Peter, he's just always slacking anyway, you know. He's never, he's never helping out. And so as they're sitting there having their dinner, this is after dinner. So they're having their dinner with smelly feet. Nobody gets up. Nobody washes anybody's feet. And then Jesus gets up. He girds himself with a towel and he goes about washing the disciples' feet. Pouring water in the vase, putting their feet in the vase, washing their vase. Now Peter has a revelation like, this shouldn't be. Lord, don't wash my feet. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus says, nope, I have, to, I have to wash your feet too. So he washes everybody's feet. And then when he's done, he says this to his disciples. He says, do you know what I've just done? And I love that question because oftentimes when Jesus asks the disciples questions, they answer in the most crazy ways, you know? And I'm just waiting for just a crazy response. He doesn't let them respond. He doesn't let them respond. He just goes on. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. And so I am. But as Lord, I have washed your feet. So now you should go and wash one another's feet. Here is the Lord of the universe, the savior of our souls in all majesty, high and lifted up, doing what no one wanted to do because it was the lowest slave's responsibility to wash feet. Even the hierarchy of slaves, even the highest slave didn't want to wash feet. And Jesus takes that place. Guys, if Jesus can come from heaven and serve us, certainly we can serve one another. Now, of course, Jesus is speaking to the whole church here. He's speaking to everybody. But isn't it applicable to husband and wife too that we serve one another? We are partners in this. God has made us partners And so we serve one another. Sometimes it's easier to serve other people outside our household, much less serve somebody inside our household. But since Jesus has done this for us, should we not do it for one another? It goes on to say here um, in Ephesians, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The second part of this is be subject one to another. The Greek word here is this word that's uh, translated or transliterated, alelus. It's that idea of voluntary cooperation. I have some favorite tools. I like doing home repair and that sort of thing. And sometimes I like doing home repair so I can buy a new tool. <laughs> so I got, some, I, got some, I got some tools that I really like and Now they're getting kind of old. I really need to get rid of my tools and get newer tools, but not everybody's on board about that idea. (laughs) And uh, I got one tool that's my favorite. This is is a remodeler's uh, dream tool. This is the tool that every remodeler needs. You know what it is? Reciprocating saw. Sawzall. It's a reciprocating saw. It goes back and forth like this. You can put a blade on that thing that's 12 inches long. You could cut off the top of someone's house as a practical joke. I mean, this will go through lumber. This will go through electrical. This will go through plumbing. It'll just cut right through and you just go all the way around the top, you know, cut off the top of their house. We also have with Minnesota as it regards tuition, reciprocity. It's the same thing. It's this voluntary back and forthness. And so when we think about submitting one to another, being subject one to another, it's this idea of reciprocity. It's not the the idea that I I have to be treated like this for me to respond, but it's the idea that it works both ways. It works both ways. So as couples, God calls us to be submissive one to another. He then goes on to say, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. So here's my second point. Not only, to, not only submit to one another, but wives, submit to your husbands. So Paul already told us to be submitting to one another. Why now is he picking out wives? Wives, you submit to your husbands. 
You'll make a mistake if you think they should be more submissive. Why should be more submissive than husbands? You'll make a mistake. The idea here is this. Let me illustrate it. So I got, I got to start this illustration with a quick confession. I love cookies. <laughs> like cookies are my favorite food. I've always liked cookies. I think I always will like cookies. I like all kinds of cookies. I like Oreo cookies or those vanilla ones with the, you know, the vanilla ones that, that you know, you buy a thousand of them for like 98 cents. I love those cookies. <laughs> but more than the store-bought ones, I like Sandy's homemade cookies. Love her homemade cookies. Got great cookies. Great chocolate chip cookies. Great pistachio nut cookies. Uh, great peanut butter cookies. Great, uh, well, a lot of great cookies. I love her monster cookies because it's like every, all those cookies together put into one cookie. I love that cookie. <laughs> but the cookies I love most are Christmas cookies. In fact, I could eat, I could eat those sugar cookies, I could eat those all day long. Don't put anything on them. You don't have to put any decorations, no, no frosting. I'll just eat it just plain, just a plain sugar cookie. I love those sugar cookies. But of course, Sandy makes like dozen, a dozen different kinds of cookies at Christmas time. Love those cookies. So years ago, when our kids were small, Sandy's going out the door, probably running to the store or something like that. Sandy's going to the store and she, as she's going out the door, she says, stay out of the cookies. They're for Christmas. Now she's talking to the whole household. And as she's going out the door, I'm following her. I'm going to lock the door behind her as she goes out the door. I'm going to lock the door. And I'm thinking to myself, she's not going to miss one cookie. <laughs> and before I could put my hand on the doorknob, the door opens and her head pokes back in. And she said, stay away from the cookies. <laughs> Those are for Christmas. So for whatever reason, she felt like I really needed to hear that again. Not just applied to everybody, but applied to me. So why does Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell us to submit one to another, and then says, wives, submit to your husbands? It could be for a number of reasons. We don't know the reason in its entirety. It could be because the women in Ephesus at this time enjoyed special privilege because of the, the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis. This temple sat on 120 square miles of land. For comparison, Madison's about 100 square miles. This sat on 120 square miles of land. It was three times the size of the uh, Parthenon in Athens. The thing was huge and made a great deal of money for the city. Well, it was staffed, if you will, by priestesses. And so women in the Ephesian culture at this time enjoyed great privilege in society, not, not like today, of course, but, but great in their, in their time, great privilege in their society. And so maybe Paul's choosing women because, you know what? You guys are having difficulty because of your privilege in this society, you're having difficulty knowing that you still have to be submissive to your husband. You still have to be submissive. Or maybe... He's writing it this way because of the church. The church was promoting women. The church and the apostles and Jesus have always promoted women. There's never been any distinction in neither Greek nor Jew, male or female. There's never been any distinction. So these females are being promoted. So maybe in the church at Ephesus, it was the same thing that, that these women who are being promoted thought, you know, I just don't need to be submissive anymore and I'm just gonna kind of be independent. It could be that. Or... It could be that just every wife of every generation would have trouble submitting to a husband. And if I were a wife, that would be the one I would pick. Because this isn't easy stuff, guys. This is hard stuff. I mean, submitting to someone else, we're just not made that way. We are made selfish and to follow our own way. And, and that's the way we're made, to be like Jesus to lay our lives down, that's hard. He goes on to say here, wives be, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. So it begins with our relationship with the Lord. As we're submissive to the Lord, that's how we should be submissive one to another, and particularly wives should be to their husbands. That it starts as unto the Lord. Paul says in a different place, he says this, do your work as unto the Lord. 
And what he means by these two things as, as do work as if you're working for the Lord. And in this particular passage, he's saying submit as if you're submitting to the Lord. And then he gives a reason. He says, because uh, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. So I'm going to talk about to the guys what it means to be the head in just a second. But just so there's no misunderstanding, let me be direct on what submission does not mean. Number one, submission does not, or let me say it differently. The Bible does not teach that husbands are the enforcers of a wife's submission. The Bible doesn't teach that husbands are the enforcers of a wife's submission. Notice here that Paul addresses the wife. There's a reason for that, guys. He's not talking to you. If, if he wanted to, he could have easily have said this. He could have said, and husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. But he doesn't say that. He speaks directly to the wife, showing that they are on equal standing. He doesn't go through the husband. He speaks to the wife. Voluntarily submit to one another like I've submitted in my life. So when I first became a believer, like when I was 20 years old, Sandy and I got married. You've heard this story. Sandy and I got married when we were 18. Our marriage was a dumpster fire from the beginning. And, and uh, two years down the road, I, I drove Sandy to become a Christian. I mean, I drove her to the, to the altar. I mean, she, she just couldn't take it anymore. It's like, I'm getting rid of this guy or I'm getting saved. And so she decided to give her life to Christ, which, which, was, which was so compelling to me because God changed her life. She was a different person. She just didn't act differently. She was different. And that was so compelling to me that I said, I want the same thing, babe, which you got. That's what I want in my life. And so... I followed the Lord just a couple, well, a few days, just a few days later, but still very raw, still a new believer. And when I came across this verse, wives submit unto your husbands, man, I underlined that thing. This was the verse I was looking for. And I underlined that and I'm thinking, you know, Sandy's not really following this verse that great, you know? <laughs> And so I took my underlined Bible and I laid it out on the coffee table in front of our, in front of our, because uh, that's the way husband and wives talk to each other sometimes, right? I just laid out my Bible right there. It's like, okay, now she'll see this and we'll get some changes around here. And uh, she never noticed it. It was underlined. It was probably highlighted. She never noticed it. So I went out and I bought one of these, you call them tracks or like a little booklet. On, on, on being a submissive wife. And I thought, this is gonna be awesome. I mean, how can she not see this, you know? And I'm being so helpful, you know? <laughs> and so I get this, and then I put my Bible and the little, the little track, I put that on the Bible, just waiting for Sandy to see it so that she can be better at what she does. <laughs> and uh, she never saw it. She never saw it. And, I, and the tension inside is getting increasingly, you know, bigger. And I'm just like, I'm just, this woman wants to grow. This is part of discipleship. I just need to. And finally I said, you need to be submitting to me. That sparked some of the most intense fellowship that we've had <laughs> ever, ever in our entire, entire marriage. Guys, it's not up to the husband to tell the wife how she should be acting. It's between her and the Lord. This is between them. This isn't, this isn't us. Our, I'll tell you what our position is as husbands in just a little bit, so don't go away. The Bible does not teach that husbands are the boss of their wives. This is going to be hard for some to take, but God has called us to a partnership. He's not called Husbands and wife where one's the boss and the other one just does whatever the boss wants. Husbands and wives are fellow heirs to God's gracious gift of life. 
I've heard it said, well, someone needs to be driving the car. Someone has to be at the steering wheel. And I'm like, yeah, who's, who's the Bible person over here? It's Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. How about we put Jesus at the wheel? How about we sit in the back seat and how about Jesus drives? How about that? Yeah. Or like this. The Bible gives this illustration of, of oxen being yoked together. And it clearly speaks of being unequally yoked. You know, it's talking about unbelievers that we shouldn't be yoked together with unbelievers. But this also illustrates the point of being in partnership where we're both leading, where we're both, we're, we're part of a partnership. We're both of, you know, discussion. We're going to talk this out. How's this thing going to work? You know, sort of thing. That's the way we lead. Like, like oxen in a yoke, we're leading together. There doesn't need to be a boss and there doesn't need to be, someone said to me when I was reflecting on this, I said, I, said, I don't think there needs to be a boss. And they said, well, there needs to be someone who's, who's a final authority. I said, I don't think so. I don't think so. When I was, when I was doing my final paper for my, my, one of my degrees, when I was doing my final paper for that, um, I did, it on, I did it on team leadership, how, how teams follow the Lord together or how they should follow the Lord together. And I studied for some time the way Quakers make decisions. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this or not, but the Quaker church, the Friends Church, you've heard of Quakers. The Quakers, the way they make the decisions, there's no hierarchy in the Quaker church. There's no pastor. You know, just someone will get up and speak on a given Sunday. And the way they make a decision is they all get in a circle and they try to discern the will of the Lord. Like there could be 40 or 50 people in a circle trying to discern the will of the Lord. Well, Greg, that seems so inefficient. I mean, how, how can they ever make a decision? Guys, you know what happens if they're, if they're not in 100% agreement? They don't go forward. They don't go forward until they're in 100% agreement. Now, there's all kinds of backdoor, backroom discussions, you know, like, hey, would you acquiesce on this? If, you know, this sort of thing. And that's fine. But the decision is made together. Now, I need your help on this next point. I searched the scriptures. Well, I searched the New Testament. Looking for a place where husband and wife make decisions. Because I wanted to see how the decision is made. So I only found one, and where I need your input is, if you can think of another one, come and tell me, because I, I'll surely say this again. Here's, here's the only place I could find in the entire New Testament, husband and wife making a decision together. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, or husband and wife making a decision. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. Okay, we don't read this verse often at church, but what it's talking about is their sexual relationship. He goes on to say, for the wife does not have authority over her body because she's living in submission, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his body because he's living in submission, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you might devote yourselves to prayer and come together again that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the only decision-making thing I can find in the, Old, in the New Testament is that they came to an agreement. They agreed together. So then, Greg, if you're making such a big point about this, what does it mean to be the head? I mean, if I can't be the boss and I can't tell my wife to submit, I mean, what fun is this anymore? <laughs> Here's your rule, guys. Here's your rule. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands, this is what it means to be the head. You need to die. When we get married, both as men and women, we're not coming to this relationship for what we can get out of it. If we come to it for what we can get out of it, it's, it's going to be disastrous. 
We come into the relationship bringing our life as a service for the other person. We're dying to our own needs. We're dying to our own desires. Guys, this is the only way it can work. And if you're in a relationship that's not working that well, it might just be this, that you're doing your own thing. You're following your own ways. You're, you're, you're caring little about your spouse. But the Bible says this, treat one another as more important than yourself. Submit to one another. And in this case, lay down your life from one another. Speaking specifically of the man, lay down your what? your life. So Paul says again to the Corinthians, it might be, near, it might be in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians there. He says again to the Corinthians, he says, he says, you know, if you want to get married, that's okay. But if you do get married, just realize this, that your devotion to the Lord will be divided. So he's saying, no problem with getting married. But if you do get married, just realize this, that if you get married, your devotion to the Lord is going to be divided. Now, for so many years, I saw that as divided in two, you know, because if it's me, now I'm married, so now my devotion is me and my wife, that's divided in two. But the word in the original language is splintered. If you get married, your devotion to the Lord is going to be splintered. And again, anybody that's been married longer than five minutes knows that being married carries with it a whole host of expectations. So this idea of entering into marriage like Christ died for the church or living our lives as the head by loving our wife just as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her is a big deal. Loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her means this. First of all, giving up your life. Jesus bids us come and die. Secondly, loving your wife as Christ loved the church means serving your wife. Just like Jesus girded himself, served his disciples, so we should serve, husbands should serve their wives. Loving your wife as Christ loved the church also means being an example for her to follow. Not using your position to be selfish or getting your way but being the example that someone will want to serve. Guys, this is powerful. Let me just tell you just a little bit about Sandy and I's development. So after I came to the Lord, I was the biggest problem in our marriage. I'll own that. I was the biggest problem in our marriage. And after I came to the Lord, things changed a lot. But the Lord called me into ministry almost immediately, and I felt like I needed a Bible college degree to, to go into ministry. So I went away to Bible college and I, I barely squeaked out of high school. I barely made it out of high school, you know. And so, so I studied really hard and then only was, you know, kind of a B student, you know. But I studied really hard. Well, this took all kinds of time away from the, from the family and the kids. And, and one day I come home from Bible college studying to be a pastor and my wife's bags are packed and at the door. I go, what? What's going on? She goes, I'm leaving. I go, Why? She goes, we have two separate lives. We don't spend any time together. I said, I spend 30 minutes with you and the kids every day. <laughs> Typical guy response, right? Typical 22-year-old guy response. I couldn't see what, you need more than this? You need more than 30 minutes a day? Well, I talked talk Sandy off the cliff, and we had, we had some long discussions around that. But things were still a little bit bumpy. We were both still headstrong. We both still wanted our own way. We were not, our marriage was not like I painted for you in, this, in these scripture, scripture passages. And then one day the Lord speaks to Sandy. Hun, you just shout if I'm not telling this story right because they're going to think I'm making this up. One day the Lord speaks to Sandy and says, says, when he says something out of line, do not respond to it. Do not respond to it. And Sandy said she had to bite her lip. Sometimes her lip was bleeding. She had to bite her lip so hard. But after a while, that changed me. That changed me. You know how it made me feel? It made me feel like I should be doing that. She was setting an example for me that I could follow after. And so for guys, the same thing is true, that we set an example, an example in apologizing first 
an example in, 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 in saying thank you first, uh, uh, an example in following the Lord, an example in all these things. These are powerful, powerful ways to love our wives. And then here's the last one. What it means to love our wives as Christ loved the church means that we love them even when they're unlovely. Even when they're unlovely. So there's an Old Testament prophet called Hosea. Some of you are familiar with this, with this prophet. Hosea was told by the Lord in kind of a practical, real-life prophecy to go marry a harlot. And so Hosea, out of obedience, goes and marries a harlot and takes her, takes her as his wife. Well, this harlot is straying all the time. And she finally strays away and the Lord says to him again, go and take a harlot. I don't know if it's the same harlot or a different harlot. Go and take a harlot as a wife because this is how Israel treats me. They're always, they're always unfaithful and they're always prostituting themselves with other gods and all these things. So this was Hosea's, this was Hosea's prophecy. And you read about it in the book of Hosea. So in 1991, there was a book written by Francine Rivers called Redeeming Love. And it's based loosely on the book of Hosea. It goes something like this. There's a young girl who goes by the name of Angel. She's eight years old when she finds out that her dad is not married to her mom, but married to someone else. And that her mom is only a casual affair of his. He ends up beating her so bad that she gets sick and ultimately dies and Angel becomes an orphan. And there must have been someone associated with the family, certainly not a friend, but someone associated with the family who thought the best thing for me to do for, with this girl is to take her and sell her into harlotry. So at eight years old, this young girl becomes a prostitute. By the time she was 18, she thought she knew everything about men and how to please them. She lived in a small mining town in Southern California around the year 1850 in this, in this book. And although there were all kinds of prostitutes in this particular city, men would come daily to do a lottery to see if they could spend time with, with Angel. And whoever won the lottery had a chance to pay her price and, and spend time with her. Enter the scene of Michael Hosea. Michael was a young man. He had his, he had his own place. He was a farmer and, and took care of livestock. And he sees Angel one day walking down the street and is instantly infatuated with her because she was beautiful. And as he's staring, staring at her, the Lord quietly speaks to him that one day she will be your wife. And he tells the friend next to him, he goes, he goes, one day that woman's going to be my wife. And his friend goes, Michael, you don't know who this woman is. And he, he laid out the whole story of Angel's past and her current situation. Michael was undaunted. He decided he was going to take some money. He was going to go and spend some time with her. And so he takes the money. He pays the people that you pay. And he ends up in her room. And she makes a play for him and she, he just simply says, no, that's not, that's not why I'm here. I'm here, I just want to get to know you. And she jokingly says something back to him. She just dismisses him. But they stay and talk for however long, 15, 20 minutes, I don't know what it is. They stay and talk to one another. And then he goes away. And then pretty soon he's got some more money, so he comes back and he pays to spend some time with Angel. And again, she tries to seduce him, but no, he's like, I'm here for one reason, I'm here to get to know you. Well, over the course of time, Michael does this several times, over the course of time, he reveals to her that God spoke to him that they are to marry. Of course, she dismisses this out of hand. But one day, she is beat by her handlers to near death. And Michael's in the right spot at the right time. He comes in, he scoops her up. He takes her through the crowd. He takes her back to his ranch and he nurses her to health over a period of months. And it's during that time that he talks her finally into marrying, marrying him. 
And so they have kind of this sham sort of wedding, you know, no, no one else is there, but they, they get married. At first opportunity, Angel leaves. And she goes back to uh, her life of harlotry. And Michael goes after her and brings her back to the ranch. Says, we're married now. You can't be doing this. And he brings her back to the ranch. And you can tell that she is starting to believe that, yes, this man really does love me. They, they've yet to consummate their, their marriage. They've yet to, because Michael wants it to be right. He wants it to be right. So although they've been together for a long time, they have yet to consummate their relationship. So Angel begins to soften. But in a weak moment, she decides to go back to her old lifestyle. And she leaves the ranch once again. And this time, Michael's brother's there, Paul, to give her a ride into town. But as they're getting closer to town, Paul demands of her payment for taking her into town. And so she pays him in female favors. She goes back to town, ends up back in her, in her lifestyle. And once again, Michael Hosea goes back to get her again and bring her back to the farm. And you can tell each time Angel is getting, is getting cleaner and purer and falling in love with Michael and, and just becoming a better person because of Michael just, just giving into her life. And Michael and Angel actually do ultimately fall in, fall in love. But Angel leaves one last time. And it's not because she wanted to go back to her old lifestyle. It's because Michael wanted kids and because of a, a procedure she'd had early on in her life because she was pregnant and could not be pregnant. She thought she could never have children. She wanted her husband to be able to have children. So she left. She left him, went back to town and out of a series of events, almost ended up back in the lifestyle, but was, was set free from that. And then in the end, ultimately ran for a period of about three years, a mission that rescued young prostitutes off the streets. Paul, Michael's brother, finally finds, finds Angel. Says, Michael still loves you. And she says, he hasn't gotten married yet. He hasn't married a woman that could give him kids. And he said, no, Michael wants you. But he's not coming after you this time. When you're ready, you have to go back. And just like the prodigal son coming home, Michael's out in the field one day, hoeing or pulling weeds or something. He looks up and there's Angel at the edge of the field. Michael asked several times, what's your name? She would never tell him her name because this is the one thing that men could not take from her. She never told anybody her name. So as they, their eyes meet, they walk towards each other and embrace. And Angel's first words to Michael are this, My name, it's Sarah. My name's Sarah. And at that moment, you know that they are, they are committed to one another. That's the second to the last scene. The last scene is them running through the hay fields with two or three children behind them that God even redeemed that part of, of Sarah's life. Guys, the Bible says this, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Guys, if we cannot embrace our wives with all the sin and all the shortcomings that go along with that, surely we're unworthy of them. Surely we're unworthy of them. But as Jesus embraced us while we were yet sinners, while we were still running the opposite direction, certainly we can love our wives even when they're unlovely. So this is how we're going to end. Husbands and wives, this is something special for you. If you're not married, just give us a few moments and we'll be done.
If your kids are sitting between you, I just encourage you to go find a place next to your wife or your husband. And as much as you can in the seat that you're in, face one another, join both your hands if you're able. Join both your hands. I want you to be able to look into each other's eyes. So as you're there holding hands, uh, first husbands, I'd like you to repeat after me. You don't have to say this really loud, just say it to your spouse. Honey, I'm sorry. For not always being the kind of husband I should be to you. For not giving you the attention you deserve. For being too caught up in my own world instead of our world. For demanding too much and not giving enough. For not loving you like I should. Please forgive me. With your love, your support, and your patience. And with your prayers, I will strive to be the kind of husband God expects me to be. And now for you wives. Honey, I'm sorry. For not always being the kind of wife that I should be. For not always appreciating all that you do. For not always being the lover that I know you need. For not always believing in your hopes and dreams. For not serving you like I know I should. Please forgive me. With your love, your support, and your patience, and with your prayers, I will strive to be the kind of wife God expects me to be. If you just shut your eyes and bow your heads and close yourself in with the Lord this morning. Lord, we want to say, first of all, just thank you for faithfully speaking into our lives. Lord, you let us run, but you don't let us get away. You'll let us go a ways, but you're not going to let us get too far away. And so we just want to say thank you for interrupting our course today, for standing like the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn, saying this far, but no farther. Lord, thank you for coming into this place today to redeem husbands, to redeem wives to redeem marriages. Lord, we say thank you for that. Lord, we all pray, either now or in the future, make us into the men and women of God that you expect us to be for your glory, for our good. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for everything you're doing in this place this morning. And we ask it all in your name. Amen.